0: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, My name is Kevin Middlebrook. And on behalf of the Americas, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this special panel on violence against women in Mexico and Central America. Uh, Our first speaker this afternoon will be Laura Carlson. Uh, Laura is is the director of the Americas program at the Center for International Policy in Washington. Uh, She is, however, and has long been based in Mexico City. Uh, She's a well-known analyst of a variety of political and social issues. Uh, in Mexico over the years and has recently co-edited a book called Confronting Globalization, Economic Integration and Popular Resistance uh, in Mexico. Uh, The second speaker will be Marilyn Thompson uh, who's co-director and a founding member of the Central American Women's Network. Uh, She has worked and traveled extensively in Latin America and has a PhD in economics and political science From the Institute of Education uh, nearby, which has recently uh, merged with uh, UCL. Uh, Her work is focused largely on the politics of domestic workers and popular education in Mexico. Uh, And finally, uh, Lorena Fuentes, who is finishing her PhD at Birkbeck College, University of London, uh, focusing particularly on women's issues and violence and victims of violence uh, in Guatemala. Laura, would you like to start us off?
1: First of all, thanks for the invitation to be here from UCL and from the Radical Americas Network. It's really a pleasure. I've been uh, talking in the London area and before that in the Madrid area about what's happening in Mexico. Um, This first picture is a picture from a demonstration, one of many that have taken place, especially in Mexico City, also in Guerrero, Mm. and other parts of Mexico since the disappearance of the 43 students of the rural teachers college called Ayotzinapa. Many of you have probably heard of this case. There were protests with the recent visit of Peña Nieto. And just to give a quick rundown of the case, because it's really brought to a head a lot of the issues that we've been looking at for a long time. Um, What happened was that on September 26th, in the town of the city, really, of Iguala Guerrero, 43 students were forcibly disappeared and six people were killed in an ambush that began by local uniformed police officers. And these students were from a nearby teachers college called Oyotsinapa, which has very specific characteristics. It's a college of uh, young men from poor, indigenous, campesino communities in the nearby area, most of them who have been given this opportunity to go to school and become professionals, become teachers, and go back into their communities to teach. These colleges were formed just not long after the Mexican Revolution. And so in addition to offering an opportunity to this part of the population that has very, very few opportunities within Mexico, it also is very based on preserving... Many of the principles of the Mexican Revolution: land is of he or she who works it. We had to modify it later. Um, you know the uh, the collective land ownership under the Hito uh, community, indigenous communities, and a whole series of what is really a very progressive revolution on paper, but that's been greatly distorted in the decades that have followed. So this has become kind of a bastion of those of resistance to the neoliberal um, model, not just this school, but the whole network of rural teacher colleges or normales that exist in Mexico, and has also become a place where the students are very active, and especially now because in resistance and in opposition to Pena Nieto's structural reforms in the area of education, which moves it toward a privatized U.S. model and also practically cuts off many of the opportunities that these people would actually have to get a job after they get out of this college. And the privatization of oil and natural gas, uh, which is key to his kind of last stage development of of imposing this neoliberal model in Mexico, that began with the free trade agreement. After they were attacked by the police, the students were uh, again attacked by an armed commando. And then there was a third attack on a bus that appears to be a case of mistaken identity and carried some young football players. This, especially the disappearance, of course, the assassinations as well, caused a huge uprising in Mexico because it was kind of a tipping point. It's not the first time that there have been disappearances, and it's not the first time that there's been assassinations, and it's not the first time that the directly people who were directly responsible are actually members of the government and not organized crime. There began to be two versions of what happened that night. The first was that um, a Mayor of Iguala, who had been corrupted by the organized crime group called Guerreros Unidos um, and had his entire police force corrupted, he's married to a woman who's um, allegedly a sister of the people who run the the drug cartel in that region, was afraid that the students were going to interrupt his political event, his wife's political event, and ordered the police to go out and stop them. you know in what words if they were actually ordered to open fire is not clear and that then the after after picking up the students, they were delivered into the hands of the organized crime group, Guerreros unidos, who then took them out, thinking that they had ties to a rival group, and um, the first version that they said that they had obtained information they had obtained from a confession of one of the members of organized crime was that they were buried in a clandestine grave. And it turned out that they did indeed find bodies there, but they weren't the bodies of the students. This might sound a little odd to anyone who doesn't live in Mexico, but you actually can go out and dig in Mexico and find bodies, especially in the state of Guerrero. So they continued. And then the second version was that the organ- that Guerrero Unidos had taken the students. To a local dump and dumped a bunch of tires and diesel fuel on top of them. Their bodies executed them and and burned the bodies beyond recognition. Uh, the this, The parents then have another version. Nobody knows exactly what happened. Uh, the the. The Attorney General's version is based on confessions, and it's now come out that those confessions were obtained under torture, which again is a very common practice in Mexico and makes any type of a confession very unreliable, uh, and also were obtained from members of the drug cartel cell. And the parents, what they're saying is that, and the students at the school, what they're saying is that this was a crime of the state. They're saying that there was a political motivation behind this crime because of their role as protesters and, uh, and at a critical time when they're trying to take <coughs> Mexico more toward this neoliberal model and trying to really destroy many of those revolutionary values that had existed before, including trying to close down the remaining um, rural teachers colleges that exist within the country and that many more members were at least aware of what was going on, if not directly involved, than the 99 people that they've arrested now that had to do with the organized crime group and with the municipal police and municipal government. The difference between these, these versions is very significant for, for those of us who analyze what's happening in Mexico and for everyone who's trying to figure out where do you go from here. Because if on the one hand you believe that there's a few bad apples in the system, which has been constantly the version that the government has been trying to put forward, then the solution, or that there's vacuums in power, or that that there's a weak state, then the solution on some level is to continue to fund the state and to make the state more powerful. And that's what the United States government is doing, and we'll talk about that in a minute, with the Merida initiative, and that's what um, the 10-point the plan that President Peña Nieto has put forward essentially does as well. It addresses in some ways the root causes ma- poverty or lack of education, but essentially continues with this repressive model in, this, in the idea that it has to be more repressive although, of course, those are not the words that they would put it in. If, however, you take the slogan of the movement, which is Fue el Estado, three words, written on the floor, the Zócalo the, after the protest, and that you see at all the protests, which means it was the state, then what you're dealing with is essentially a criminal state. And the last thing you want to do is empower it more, and particularly with repressive tools. And that, is, that exactly is what the war on drugs is. want to go and mention before that these disappearances... I've had a lot of people ask me, why now? Why, not why now were they disappeared, although that still remains part of the question in this case, but why now are people getting so upset about it uh, when they didn't before? When disappearances... There's an estimated 26,000 disappearances in Mexico... A hundred thousand people will show these, and one of the places where it first came up had to do with women and so there is a little bit of a question you know of the traditional women 's lives matter less that's involved here, although personally you know I think it's 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 been a tremendous advance for Mexican society that finally something broke through. The, to, to raise so much outrage and indignation with the case of Ayotzinapa. But the truth is, yes, that there have been disappearances and assassinations and, and um, graves with unidentified bodies in them for years. It was first identified in Ciudad Juarez in 1993 and began to profile as a phenomenon the uh, femicides of young women who worked in the maquiladoras, most of them, who showed signs of sexual torture and violence. And there was a lot of response on the part of the state, but there's a context here for both crimes, the femicides of Juarez and elsewhere, because now the state of Mexico, where Peña Nieto was the former governor, has become the new champion of femicides. Um, And the context that really permits this to happen is impunity and that is to say that in mexico we're a country where 98 percent of crimes that are committed are not brought to justice they're either not reported because people don't have any faith in the authorities anymore they're reported and they're not investigated or not investigated properly or they go to a court where a judge is bought out and bought off and they're thrown out every step along the way is is a loophole in the justice system which can very fairly be qualified as dysfunctional. This permits, in the case of the femicides and the new kind of wave of femicides that we're seeing now, it permits people uh, to commit violence against women and violence in general with almost the assurance that nothing will happen to them. So with the femicides what we're seeing is that they're increasing in all realms, both in the in the home and in the public sphere. Now, the other context that's important to understand for this rise in femicides and violence against women in Mexico now is the general rise in violence. And almost no one disputes that the rise in violence in Mexico has to do directly with um, with the drug war, with the war on drugs. So a public policy that was adopted in 2006... Let me just see. Oh, yeah, let's go to this one first just to get a sense of the kind of violence we're talking about. 100,000 deaths since 2007. The drug war was declared by Calderon, then President Felipe Calderon, in December of 2006, and the major operations began in 2007. Twenty-six thousand disappeared, and the, and some of these, a lot, all of these numbers practically are a guessing game. I mean, there's certain international organizations are trying to quantify it. The government quantify it, but quantifies it, but also manipulates it and hides it. And so we're just figuring here. Um, the last official figure was twenty-six thousand amnesty international just came out with a report that there's been a six-fold increase in reported torture and we're not talking about the drug cartels here who torture routinely we're talking about just in reports against the armed forces and the police and there's also been a 300 percent increase in femicides from ciudad juarez and a 40% increase in femicides on a national level. Again, the reporting mechanisms on these are very difficult. Femicide is typified specifically as a crime. What is femicide? It's the murder of a woman because she's a woman. So it has to have gender aspects, which include sexual torture or certain types of circumstances. It's actually typified as a specific crime in 14 states, but some of those are, um, they're not all the same. And some of that legal language is, is not the best. And there's, a re- and there's a lack in the other states, and there's a lack of uh, follow-up in terms of how it's used as well. But where the best that we can figure out, and people actually do go into these cra- cases in a sense and look at what the circumstances of, of the homicides of women were to try to figure it out. This is the kinds of increases we've been seeing just since the drug war started about eight years ago. The displaced have been between 160,000 and 1. 1.5 million. There have been extrajudicial judi- executions. One of the most important that happened right before Ayotzinapa is called Tlatlaya. Where there was a, a notice, in, you know, there was a note in the newspaper, very short, came out from the Secretary of the Defense saying that there was an armed confrontation in the little town of Tlatlaya in the state of Mexico, uh, and 22 youth were <coughs> killed. No one was wounded on the other side. So this seemed odd to almost anybody who read it, but luckily some reporters went out there and in a very risky situation. And they found some witnesses who took even greater risks and were able to discover that these young, probably delinquent students, not that they were blame free, but certainly uh, do not deserve to be executed. It's one of the problems that we have. Sometimes you get to a point as a society where the media has done such a job that if you say And so many people died, but they were members of organized crime. They haven't been tried. Nobody's even investigated if they were really members of organized crime or not in the first place. But when people read that, they go, oh, yeah. Oh, well, then that's okay." In this case, though, it became a big case, and it's still being investigated because they were all lined up and executed. And not only that, the area was closed off, and the Army battalion laid the assault rifles next to their bodies and repositioned the bodies. To try to make it look as if it had been an armed confrontation. And of course, the violation of human rights. Now, the role of the United States in applying this drug war model is not only that they've supported Calderon's drug war with $2.4 billion since it began in 2007, but that it actually conforms to a plan that they had since well before the Merida Initiative was announced. And that dates back, first of all, to the Free Trade Agreement, and then secondly to the Security and Prosperity Agreement, which was the extension of the Free Trade Agreement into the area of security. This is a very strange thing. I don't think it's happened anywhere else, but this was after September 11th, and the United States was looking to make Canada and Mexico part of what it called its security perimeter, a complete violation of any concept of national sovereignty you know, that any of us would have learned in a classroom. And, then, and even the Mexican government wasn't happy with it. But by this time, Mexico had 80% of its trade with the United States, and its degree of economic dependence was such that they really couldn't say no. It meant they had to militarize their southern border against Central American migrants mostly, because there's no international terrorism threat that comes out of Mexico much as they have tried to talk about that as one of the justifications. And they had to permit their US drones that fly over Mexico now on a routine basis and these kinds of measures. So this was uh, the counter-narcotics efforts really were what provided an in for uh, this huge expansions of Pentagon activities. There's a prohibition on having army people within the country but uh, the DEA, there's an alphabet soup of U.S. agencies that many of you recognize, the DEA, Drug Enforcement, FBI, CIA, ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Their expansion within that, they're having to build another embassy now because the former embassy doesn't hold it, and it's its either the second or third largest embassy now in the world just to run this war on drugs um, and with, with, as you can see, the... Ex- a very high degree of U.S. involvement. Um, they, what they get out of that is the, the, the contracts of this $2.4 billion are almost all spent in the United States. They've gone to Boeing and Lockheed for helicopters and airplanes. They've gone to Blackwater-type security firms that are training local police forces. They go to NGOs that are supposedly doing human rights Work, although we certainly haven't seen many results from that kind of, you know, the institution-building part of it is what they say is kind of the soft security. But most money is going within the United States. And there's a defense, a war industry lobby that with the drawdown in the Middle East is looking to expand this drug war as kind of its new market frontier. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure to keep it going despite the absolutely dismal Results. The police have also been militarized. There's 50,000 army troops have been deployed throughout the country, which means that you have a country that's under the gun, basically. And this is an aspect that's always been central to the war on drugs since the time President Nixon invented it in 1971. What he did was call, you know, name drugs, Ill- prohibited drugs in the United States, public enemy number one and send police out, and the upshot, as we now know, was millions, literally millions of youth, mostly African-American and Latino youth, in prison for simple possession. And at the time, they were a trouble-causing sector of the society. There were protests against the Vietnam War, and this enabled Nixon to have a widespread mechanism of social control. When you export it, the same thing happens. United States now has proxy armies in Mexico's army and police force to protect its investments under NAFTA. This was also announced early on that what the Security and Prosperity Agreement and now the Emerita Initiative would do is to arm NAFTA to make sure that those investments now that now will expand can be protected. The kingpin strategy is a disaster, and we won't go into that because um, it's more complicated, except to say this is a Chapo Guzman. Every time they take out a kingpin, they either fragment uh, a cartel or cause a turf war. And so there's, it's documented that this causes a huge explosion in the violence. These are the results of it. There's After eight years and after 40 years of the war on drugs model, including the supply side, in, the, in foreign countries, in Plan Colombia, in Plan Mexico, the consumption is up, drugs are cheaper, and the market is stable. So they know that this thing doesn't work. And that's when you begin to say what is really behind the model of the drug war, both in the United States and in our countries. We also know, of course, that there's been this huge rise. Oh, that one's in Spanish. Now, this is quickly, we mentioned that then you've got generalized violence, Um, So the war on drugs, you've got a patriarchal system that's intensified through militarism, which is the state response, and the narco-culture, which is extremely macho and violent. You've got impunity and corruption as the framework for it, a deterioration of the social pact, the normalization of violence, where people start considering that they just have to live with it, and the dehumanization of its victims and then the diversification of drug cartels that have been fragmented and begin to go more and more into these other, these other businesses, including sex trafficking and some that have particularly terrible effects on women. But there's one more, one more reason why we've seen this violence against women explode in recent years, and with this I'll finish up, and that is that women are also leading the resistance in many parts of the country. They're leading the movements to search for justice in the cases of the disappeared, many times their daughters, their sons. They're leading the movements to um, defend local natural resources against some of the mining projects and, and the displacement of from mega-projects that are going on throughout the country. And where, where you go, you find women are taking on this leading role in femicides while the war on drugs is a mechanism of social control, femicide in particular is a punishment for women who have taken that on. We find them leading movements against corruption. I think that's in Honduras, against mega projects in Oaxaca, in search of their children, their loved ones. This is a movement for peace with justice and dignity. For democracy and against militarization, this is after the coup in Honduras. For access to safe and healthy food, especially against GMOs and uh, the genetic modification of corn. Against mining projects in the defense of land and territories, these women are laying their bodies on the line to, pre- to prevent heavy equipment from coming in to their community for mining in Guatemala. For autonomy and new worlds. These, of course, are Zapatista women who continue to defend their communities and their autonomy in southern Mexico for life. So these are transnational problems, and they're not problems that have no solution, although obviously the solution can't happen overnight. But since they're transnational problems, they have to have transnational solutions. And so we have to look for those solutions because everyone's responsible for what's happening. In Mexico, so much of what's happening is in the context, as we've talked about, of globalization that's happening throughout the world. And yet some people, and especially women, are suffering much more than others throughout the world. And that's why we need to support those women who are literally putting their bodies on the line and so often have to end up paying the maximum price, with their bodies for their resistance. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Laura. Marilyn? Good evening,
2: everybody. Um, I'm going to talk about um, women in Honduras and um, focusing on on violence and also uh, tell you a little bit about the Central America Women's Network. Um, Well, Honduras sits to the south of Mexico, um, a small country, 8 million people, and um, one of the poorest in in Latin America, Um, over 60% of people living below the poverty line. Um, And um, there are many social and economic problems that are faced by people there. One of the big problems, um, which resulted in increased levels of violence, was the coup in two thousand and nine, when the president was removed, um, and the country was militarized. Um, There were elections um, the end of two thousand and twelve, and the new government is now in place since uh, beginning of last year. 2013. Um, but the, the issues of um, violence in the country haven't um, changed with this new um, democracy. Um, so um, the situation of women is um, one of um, exploitation and violence generally. Um, but um, one of the issues is the um, cutback of um, implementations of laws which were supporting women's rights with this change of government for example the um, women's um, institutions that existed, women's offices, the government um, uh, ministry responsible for women's issues were uh, demoted and the budgets cut so there's much less um, support for um, women's um, rights generally Um, and um, also women's access to power has been um, uh, curtailed. Um, I'll go into that in a little bit. Um, There's widespread domestic and family violence, an increase in femicide, and impunity for perpetrators of violence, as well as the militarisation of the country. And we've seen this, for example, land grabs, where they're trying to take over um, indigenous Garifuna lands to build hotels and mining and so on. So we're seeing similar patterns to what Laura has been talking about in, in Mexico. Um, there are loads of laws um, in Honduras which are su- supposed to be supporting women. I'm just um, not going to go through them all but just to give you an example. Um, there's um, you know, laws of equal opportunities there's um, Um, sort of plans against violence, um, but um, with this change of government, the domestic violence law was reformed, and it was um, returned to the private sphere, which gives greater protection to the perpetrators, and um, also it uh, prohibits women's organisations from accompanying women to file complaints of domestic violence. And um, this is quite important because um, this, is, uh, th- this is being used to stop women human rights defenders from supporting women who are um, victims of violence. Um, women's lives aren't protected at all. Um, this is um, just to give you some idea of the rate of femicides and how it's increased since 2005. Before that, they weren't recorded as femicides, and women's organisations pushed for the crimes to actually be recorded as um, femicides. And um, then the numbers have gone up to um, over six hundred in the um, 2013. It was 636, and um, they've gone down slightly last year. The number recorded was 531. Um, and the, m- the largest number are young women, that, um, but it, it does cut across all age groups. Um, and the women who are most vulnerable are women who might be out on the streets because they're working in the informal economy, maquila um, workers, because of their shift patterns, they, um, they arrive home late at night and they have to go through, walk through dangerous neighborhoods to get home. Um, and uh, femicides, um, you know, there are different causes, as um, Nora pointed out. I mean, there's related to the drug wars, to gang warfare, and also um, the escalation of domestic violence. And, um, well, the response to violence, um, well, the procedures are very slow and there's insufficient resources. Um, justice is free, women have got to pay to file um, complaints to get lawyers, Um, so for poor women this is beyond their means. Um, (coughs) There's also um, a lack of coordination amongst the different services and um, although um, there might be cases reported, there's inadequate staff to deal with these cases. And um, there's also a lot of mistrust, and so that people don't report cases, and this is because of the impunity. Very, very few perpetrators are, are, are charged or even caught. Um, another um, issue that's is, is the criminalization of human rights defenders, and um, these are members of um, civil society organisations who are out protesting <coughs> and um, the lawsuits have been taken out against them and um, they are surve- surveilled and they're, and they're watched and intimidated and persecuted. they receive threats and harassments. Journalists in um, particular are, um received lots of death threats and some <coughs> have, had, have been forced into exile. Um, now yesterday um, was International Women's Day and uh, I've got two um, press statements from women's organisations in Honduras which you can you can take away with you and um, one of them is um, from the tra- tra- Tribunal on Femicides and um, they are concerned about the, ca- the particular case of a woman human rights defender who um, has been charged um, for um, for supporting a woman a, a woman who was trying to defend herself against um, sexual <coughs> harassment and um, this this woman from a grassroots women 's organization um, has been um, you know she keeps get taken up to court and then it 's it's postponed and there's still she, she still hasn 't actually been received her sentence so this um, call from um, uh, a whole group of women's organisations are um, asking for this um, woman to, um, to um, you know, be protected and uh, are protesting against the criminalization of human rights defenders. Um, so um, the other statement is um, from Kodemu, <coughs> which is an organisation which is working with maquila workers and um, they are also um, protesting about the lack of protection for women in the workplace and on the streets. And um, in the workplace, the um, maquila factories are um, increasingly exploiting women workers, giving them very long um, shifts, and um, they they, um, they have very bad working conditions, and they are quite often harassed at work. And um, their situation is also very unstable. The type of contracts they have, they're easily dismissed. So um, they are both out of press statements, so you can take away copies of those with you. Um, So Honduras is one of the largest exporters of clothes and textiles to the US market. And they employ over 100,000 workers um, more than half of them are young women with little education and many of these factories um, are in export processing zones so they, they are um, they don't have very many sort of uh, tax um, criteria and um, they are exempt from all sorts of local labour legislation and um, so the, although they need the jobs for the for. for for the, for the workers, um, this is at a cost. Um, so this organisation, CODEMU, the Honduran Women's Collective, has been fighting for women's rights. And um, they are based in Choloma, which is uh, near San Pedro Sula, which is uh, also <coughs> known as the murder capital of um, Honduras because that's where most of the gang warfare is, um, take place, and it's the centre for um, drug trafficking. And so the, um, so the women that are, are being supported by Kodemu um, are very often um, also um, victims of, of violence. And Kodemo provides legal <coughs> and, and medical advice to um, women workers, not only around their workers' rights, but also on violence against women. And um, it's um, been raising um, the issue of occupational injuries and um, occupational health issues. And um, they've also revised labour codes and are are, are carrying out advocacy with the government to change the labour legislation. And um, they um, also um, went to a hearing of the um, Organisation of American States, the Commission on Human Rights in Last November, to present the case of forty-nine workers who had been unfairly dismissed, and um, the um, this Inter-American Commission of Human Rights went to Honduras in December um, to on, a, on an official mission to investigate the case of um, human rights <coughs> abuses in Honduras, and have produced a report, which you can probably find on the internet. Um, so. Um, that in general is um, the situation in Honduras. Um, Central American Women's Network was set up in 1991 to support um, the struggles of women in the region at a time when there was revolution and civil war in Central America. And there was a strong British solidarity movement, but women's voices weren't being heard. And um, so we set up our network in order to ensure that these voices were um, reaching the British public and the solidarity movement here. And um, uh, one of the issues that we've worked with is on the issue of um, eradicating violence against women. And um, we've done that by um, carrying out research and publicizing cases and um, giving practical support to women's organizations. We've also supported um, women workers, and um, stopping unfair uh, trade agreements. We did a lot of campaigning around um, uh, NAFTA and CAFTA and um, looking at the impact on women of these um, trade agreements. And um, also campaigns on women's reproductive rights. At the moment, we are running a campaign supporting (coughs) a campaign by women in El Salvador to free um, women who have been imprisoned Um, charged with culpable homicide um, under their um, abortion laws, which prohibit any form of abortion. And these women um, have, they had um, obstetric uh, complications during pregnancies, resulting in miscarriages or stillbirths. Uh, Mostly they weren't intending to terminate their pregnancy, but they were taken from the hospital to prison when given you know, really heavy sen- sentences between 7 and 30 years' imprisonment. So we're supporting this campaign to pardon these women. One of them was freed a couple of weeks ago, but they said they wouldn't pardon the other women. Um, <clears throat> um, so, yeah, so Cohen carries out research, and um, you can find our briefing on the, um, and different reports on our website. I've got examples here. Um, and we organise conferences and meetings, um, training. Um, We recently did quite a bit of training on using the media and social media in order to um, um, work on denouncing um, violations of women's rights. Um, We also carry out lobbying. This is a petition to the Honduran ambassador, um, we are going to be meeting with the Salvadoran ambassador to present a petition which has been signed by over 300 um, women and people in the UK on this uh, um, bill in El Salvador. And um, we out, get out on the streets and march in solidarity with women in Central America. So that very quickly is a um, rundown of what we do in Corn. Um, as I said we're a very small uh, solidarity organisation and it's uh, always a struggle to keep going but um, you know, it's very important that we keep um, knowledge and information about Central America alive in this country um, because there is very little in the press and that's why it's important to have these types of events as well where um, you know, we can inform you and you know, keep you abreast of what's happening in the region so Come join
3: us! <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul. Um Okay, so I'm much less formal. I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, uh, and I've actually just come back from another round of research in Guatemala. Um, what I'm, I think that there's been a some really important points that allow me to not do any hard work and just jump right <laughs> into my own research because basically. There's a lot of common denominators, obviously, in the Mexico-Central America context, particularly in relation to violence against women and femicide. Um, Both have alluded to the neoliberal context, so the political economy of this space that we're considering here, Um, the militarization of public space in response to, or or allegedly as a sort of policy approach to the drugs war, organized crime, um, but... I think all of us here would agree that it's very much more a militarized response to any political public protest that is challenging status quo when there is uh, rejection, and particularly indigenous communities rejecting extractive industries. Um, it seems to be that the approach is a militarized response to, to that form of protest, but when it's... Uh, so, so really, any, any protest that they deem illegitimate... Um, and then, of course, the the, denomin- the common denominators of having entrenched racist, patriarchal, classist institutions across the board. Um, the one my research focus is in the Guatemalan context, but I aim as much as possible to have comparative overlap with the Central American and Mexican region. Uh, one point that does, I think, mark an important differentiation is that. Uh, in addition to being a post-war context, uh, war that officially only ended in 1996, Guatemala was was the only country in Latin America whose war was officially deemed genocidal by a UN commission, um, and that marks that marks the the post-war context um, uh, indelibly, and uh, it's something that that continues to to bear on the the types of victims of femicide that are that are most represented in the statistics, but also least contemplated by politicians and the media and policy frameworks. Um, My particular research project is at the level of discourse, uh, representations at the level of discursive economy, and a lot of the time I get questioned on this. Why, if you're focusing on something as material and real, so to speak, as femicide, would you focus on words? Um, and my argument is essentially that the, the, the kinship between discourse and materiality is crucial. Um, so, you know, someone actually who is at King's, Boestin, put Boestin, put this very well in the relation to the Peruvian context. And what she said is that the representations of violence against women, femicide, sexual violence, uh, are located at the front lines of the response to peacetime violence against women. So what does that mean? It means that how how a policymaker, a politician defines violence will have implications at the level of policy frameworks and laws. Um, how the media accounts for victims of violence and 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 explains that violence has an impact on how people then interpret or understand or explain or explain away that violence and, and some uh, some an example was made earlier about that if it's someone that's considered within the framework of social cleansing, that someone that's sort of an undesirable subject, so linked to a gang or organized crime, all that needs to be done is that you report on that femicide, link her to a gang, and essentially not only is it not a death that matters, it's actually a death that's often desirable to the body politic, because it's like one less. And as crude as that sounds, that is the reality in Guatemala, and I, I don't want to speak for the rest of Central America, but that is something that is... Very easy to map in terms of people's uh, public perceptions and responses. Um, so, so yeah, I sort of jumped ahead. But what I what I want to begin with, and what I do begin with in my research, is the seemingly simple contemplation on the relationship between violence against women and visibility, uh, or specifically femicide and visibility. So, what can we reflect on the question of how, you know, government state actors and mainstream media interlocutors work to either produce active visibility of an issue or to obscure it. So this, again, Laura mentioned why now, that this is a question of, you know, first of all, femicide is not new. Sexual violence is not new. It doesn't just happen in war context or post-war context, but there seem to be certain historical moments or presence. Where it becomes an issue. This happened last year in the UK. We had a conference on sexual violence in armed conflict, and we had Angelina Jolie and representatives of the government, you know, talking about sexual violence as a weapon of war. Why? Why now? Why? You know. So those are the kinds of questions I ask because all of a sudden, you get this sense that it's this outburst and that now it's become this issue. And you get a similar phenomenon in in the Central American context where there are these moments where. Disappearances and femicides seem to ha- hold uh, hold more weight in, in public dis- discussions and debates um, so by visibility I refer to sort of a range of practices so at the level of the aesthetic um, so when and how are victims of femicide represented in mainstream media accounts um, in relation to the level of the discursive under what context and conditions do femicides make it into the domain of political relevance and why? And also at the policy level, why, how is that femicide and violence against women deployed within different policy agendas? So there's these different ways in which, at least in the Guatemalan context, what, what I would argue is that it's not a lack of talking about femicide and arguably not a lack of visibilizing femicide. So the most widely circulated mainstream daily newspaper in Guatemala um libre I would you know I would say that there isn't a single day that goes by where there isn't at least one case of a violent killing of a woman in the newspaper in the first 10 pages often accompanied with a photo and I've spoken to a lot of journalists in Guatemala and what they essentially say is yeah obviously death sells. better yet if there's a photo and what we know is that at these, at these uh, scenes of, of when they find a woman's body, often the police and the uh, people on site will take the, anything that they've used to cover the body and allow the journalists to take a photo because they know that will sell. Obviously, this goes against so many ethical principles but also legal ones in terms of maintaining a scene of, 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 of a crime in order to be able to properly investigate it. But again, this is, this is something that's completely normalised um so so what I've tried to sort of look at is, in addition to sort of looking at how this current administration, for example, in Guatemala, um, uh, Otto Perez Molina is the president and he is the leader of the Patriot Party, and basically his his tenure is going to be up, and there are going to be elections later this year um, but under under his administration, which is you know right wing completely military Militarized in their approach. Uh, he himself was actually a military commander of an area in Guatemala that was um, part of the genocidal campaign in Guatemala, and he is president. So, speaking of the theme of impunity, it, I mean, it's it's almost it's almost a joke to talk about, you know, whether whether the state of Guatemala and the sort of key institutional actors. Um, are, are implicated in war crimes because I would very much say that they are, but he has very much been all about talking about violence against women and femicide, and as has his administration. And to me, that just brings up a red flag immediately because why, you know, how is it that that speaking about femicide doesn't present a risk to someone who was involved, you know, allegedly involved in a genocidal campaign and whose policies. And political framework are otherwise very conservative and military and and that's what's been so interesting about ex- analyzing his his administration in the past four years because you have a sort of framework that I'm arguing is either situating femicides in in two groups so you have the the, the private sphere femicides, so the ones that are framed as taking place between two Heterosexual individuals in the t- context of the nuclear family and the home. And I argue that this is the VIF frame, violencia intrafamiliar. And so, what you s- hear in the discourses of the state, government, and in the policy framework itself is uh, um, a notion that it's interfamilial violence, it's domestic violence, it's violence between sentimental couples. And so, obviously, there's an there's a frame that's being enacted that's you know heteronormative, um, also does a lot to sort of obscure uh, different forms of violence that can take place within the home, and uh, and because the frame is so focused on the nuclear family and heterosexual couples, it also has a lot uh, plays a role in the reproduction, I think, of sort of racist and classist regimes of visibilizing violence because the victims of femicide in the home that tend to make it into political or mainstream media discourses tend to be um, lighter-skinned women coming from sort of middle, if not upper-class echelons of society. It's not to say that it's not important to visualize those cases, but there is a lot being done to sort of produce a hierarchy of femicide victims. Um, so what's interesting here is that Guatemala actually, despite having a law against femicide, which was passed in 2008, and I don't want to go into particulars of all that, but anyone can approach me after to sort of um, ask follow-up questions about the legal framework. But at a sort of basic level, the framework is, it was very good in the sense that it said femicides take place in public and private spaces and between people that know each other and people that don't. But what this administration has done, I think, quite effectively, it's, it's taken that framework and actually privatized it and depoliticized it by inserting femicide back into the sphere of the home. And while it is true that domestic violence that ends in femicide is rampant in, in, in Guatemala, the VIF frame sort of enacts this a very, very sliver-like um, section of the forms of violence that, that women face, and the types of victims, and, and they, there is a sort of typology that's being produced here um, by enacting a frame of violencia intrafamiliar. And so there's on the one side this the spatiality of femicides in the private sphere that government and legal interpolations are are sort of addressing, but in a very limited way. And what happens essentially is that victims are treated as oh poor core thing basically those who die within the four sphere, the four walls of the home so there it's acknowledged in a very very limited way i don't want to overstate this it's it's acknowledged that this happens but it's it's not in a human rights or women's rights framework and essentially it treats the perpetrator as a bad apple a monster and and the and the victim is essentially you know you know, it's not that she's necessarily representative of a larger systemic problem, and certainly there's no accounting for the continuum of violence that ended in her death. And what also results from this framing is that the state is not, the state essentially is not in the picture in relation to accountability. This is not considered a a form of violence that's essentially authorized by the omissions and commissions of the state. So that's sort of one, one group of victims and forms of violence that, I, that I'm arguing are being interpolated within the frame of femicide and Guatemala. The second group is the group of femicides that take place or found in the public spa- spaces of society. And here, rather than enact this frame of uh, you know, domestic violence or partner violence, I'm arguing that those femicides are tending to fall into the frame of insecurity Um, And this is because Guatemala is an extremely, extremely violent society, and it is unsafe to be sort of just out in the public sphere. I, I do not feel safe most of the time when I'm maneuvering myself around the capital or elsewhere, and I'm someone who has enormous privileges relative to the average individual, especially woman in Guatemala, and yet I don't feel safe. And the insecurity frame is essentially focusing on um the the perpetrators of any violence it's sort of used in this discursive uh limit point of its gangs it's gang related organized crime related and so whenever those terms are sort of invoked by the president or by key political actors or the media it sort of is the ultimate way of explaining all the violence away so you, all you, all that really needs to be done is that when a when a woman is found in a, a public space um, violated or dead, there is an an incredible uh, consistency to the way those deaths are represented. So very recently, um, what is being considered an emblematic case of sorts, uh, two young women were uh, murdered and left outside of their, this, the school they attend in the capital. The very first thing, within one hour, the very first thing the president said was that they were connected to Amara, which is a gang. And it's incredible to actually track the social media responses and public responses to that, because people sort of explain it a way that she deserved it, um, better, better now before she herself becomes a criminal, and I mean, this isn't, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's, and it's, it's not something that just happens once or twice. It's, at least in my years of research, it's, it's, it's reached a theoretical saturation point. Like the responses are so clockwork the same when you have deaths in, in public spaces. Um, and then again, what you get is a total scapegoating of all Uh, youth, males, particularly uh, racialized ones and ones coming from poorer sectors as the ones who are responsible for these deaths and I'm not saying that there are no gang related deaths whatsoever that is absolutely not my argument my argument is, is more about how you get these sort of discursive codes and visual codes that tell a story that basically completes or closes space for debate because it's like the the message gets delivered to the public, and it's already you're, you're being told who the perpetrator is, who the victim is, whether or not this is a a death that warrants investigation by the state or by the justice system, and whether you should be feel 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 fearful or feel like justice was done, and um, you know, so so again, sort of one of the. One of the things that um, I've I've sort of looked at is that in in media representations, it tends to be that if a femicide is represented through the medium of the face, she's not considered disposable, at least in death. And what I mean by this is that there have been many emblematic cases of femicide in the past couple of years that the victim in question is fits within this frame of violencia la familia so she was killed by her partner in the home and these victims are tending to emerge representationally in media accounts through the medium of their faces and there's a sort of subjectivity that's given to her um, it's, it's still it's still abhorrent because it's exploiting it exploits her story and it sort of treats her as a agency less victim but she does emerge that victim can emerge and and in a sense the communication there is that she's a loss, and very often, again, this is a lighter-skinned victim coming from sort of middle or upper-class echelons of Guatemalan society. And I argue that she, she, that victim, can emerge because she's not contradicting the sort of policy, legal, and discursive framework that's being used by elite political and other actors within the government of Guatemala. On the other hand, victims in this public, uh, in in within the, within the discourse of, of sort of so-called public femicides, are emerging representationally through the medium of their body. And this is really important. And and I mean, in Guatemala, there's absolutely no regulation of printing photos of the cadavers of bodies. It's again actively sought after and encouraged. And. So uh, so with those deaths, again, you get this communication of the, 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 essentially the disposability of that victim in life and death. And uh, again, I'm sure some of you can notice that I'm very much pulling from Butlerian um, notions here of, of uh, disposability and, and whatnot. And it holds so well because... Essentially, again, it's it's that communication via the, the the visual of what that victim does or doesn't warrant in terms of societal grief, but also state uh, the the state's responsibility. Um, Terrific, that's great. So that was essentially my uh, part of my, my thesis argument in a nutshell. And and what I sort of want to do um, in relation to triggering questions for all three of us is dovetail back into the sort of wider policy and political context for for femicides in Mexico and Central America. And one uh, very recent um, development project plan that has been laid out is the Plan of Alliance for Prosperity in the Northern Triangle. And I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this, but it was a... uh, A development plan that was announced in November 2014 within the framework of allegedly responding to the vast poverty and violence that characterizes the region, particularly the Northern Triangle, which is Honduras, um, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Um, I'm always wary about statistics because I always question, again, why statistics are being deployed and by who, and the fact that the president of Guatemala is always asking for more statistics from women's groups and feminist groups tells you a lot. Um, what I've heard officially and unofficially is that he loves getting, you know, news that Guatemala is at the highest right now because it brings a lot of international cooperation or at least attention. Um, and that's something else we can talk about. So, But this plan is, is, is in response to the poverty and violence in the Northern Triangle. And it's trying to basically also curb the unprecedented migration that we've seen um, that became a big sort of issue all of a sudden, apparently all of a sudden last summer. And uh, and, and uh, Joseph Biden was just in Guatemala this past week with the president of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And one thing I, I think we need to really keep kind of our ears peeled for is how they're, how they're embedding violence against women into this broader framework of development. And... Insecurity, And again, I, I want to question, you know, violence and insecurity, how is it being defined? And violence against who and insecurity for who? And here, you know, is it really, you know, women's bodies that are being contemplated within the frame of, of insecurity and violence and, and increasing protections? Or is it, you know, the, inse- the, the, the insecurity of, of Foreign direct investment or extractive industries, and that that's what really needs to be protected through militarized responses. And I I obviously come from a, a particular uh, perspective on that, but I think that within the framework of this economic um, development plan and security plan, we need to sort of see how how, in a sense, femicide is getting strategically deployed as an as a sort of theme rather than a social problem and, 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 and always sort of be cautious um, and, and not assume that just because we are talking about violence against women and femicide or visibilizing it in some way that that's inherently a good and progressive thing I think it's about problematizing the context and conditions under which femicide comes to matter and why certain victims seem to come to matter more or less than others thank you, thank you.
0: Please join me in thanking the panelists for a really excellent presentation.